Welcome to Reconciliation Roundtable, a new podcast where we discuss building bridges of understanding across religious and political difference. I'm your host, Mark Beckwith, retired Bishop of the Diocese of Newark in the Episcopal Church. There are forces and voices in our increasingly polarized world that want us to view each other in the issues of the day in a binary way, this or that, good or bad. I want to invite you on a journey beyond the safety of our silos and our egos to the soul, where we have the opportunity to see things differently. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to find more content like this, please visit my website at www.markbeckwith.net, where you can listen to more episodes, read my weekly blog, and sign up to get weekly reflections in your inbox. I also explore the themes of this podcast further in my book, Seeing the Unseen, Beyond Prejudices, Paradigms, and Party Lines. Welcome everyone to Reconciliation Roundtable and gathering people from across the religious spectrum to talk about the journeys that we have taken, the hope that we have, and the challenges that we face. With me today, I have the Reverend Raymond Chang, who is the president of the Asian American Christian Collaborative. Ray also is the director of the 10 by 10 program at Fuller Seminary in California, seeking over 10 years to engage 10 million young people in the work of the gospel and has engaged so many other Christian groups in that effort. Prior to that, he was a chaplain at Wheaton College, and as president of the Asian American Christian Collaborative, he and I have gotten to know each other in our common interest and commitment to reducing gun violence, and I appreciate his witness. He has spoken and written in so many different venues, and it's my honor to have Ray here with me. So, Ray, welcome. Thank you, and the honor is mine, Bishop, I, though I don't know if anyone ever really retires from ministry, and so they say uh, it's repositioning or transitioning into a different ministry role. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, retirement has given me an opportunity to engage in some of the issues that I didn't have time for uh, in managing a diocese, so this is a real opportunity in building broader relationships and deepening commitments, and organizing together for the gospel mandate that I think we all share. Ray, you have a passion and a commitment for many things, the gospel, uh, working with youth, Asian Americans, reducing gun violence. Where did it start, and how has that journey progressed? Yeah, I think for me, it started through the transmission of faith from my parents. I'm sixth and seventh generation or seventh and eighth generation, we're still trying to figure that out Christian on both sides of my family. And so my Christian faith has been a part of everything that I know to be true and real in life. It's probably been the most significant force and factor in terms of uh, how I understand myself and how I see the world and how I view God calling us to engage with the world. And so yeah, I mean, what I, one of the things I've seen over and over again is how God continues to call us out from the places of our own comfort and our own kind of comfort zones to 
embody and uh, demonstrate and display uh, his ethics and his commitment and his vision for human flourishing out in the world. And so for me, I feel like I've always kind of been someone that has had a deeply personal faith in Jesus that has never been void of a socially engaged faith expression and a desire for public Christian witness, especially as you look at all the studies that are showing how more than anything else, hypocrisy is the thing that's disillusioning people, especially those that are outside of the the Christian faith tradition from really wanting to engage with Christianity. And so I think just seeing the pain and suffering and seeing all the the wickedness and evil and seeing all the the harm and difficulties that people are going through and seeing the deep well of resources and the power of God being able to not just make a difference, but calling us out as his hands and feet to make a difference has really kind of led me to remain sensitive to uh, the plights that people might be experiencing and then actually move towards those out of my faith commitment. And that plight, that pain, that suffering ratcheted up in a, a unique way, certainly across the country in March of 2021 in Atlanta when some Asian American women were shot and killed. How has that shaped you personally and how has that shaped your ministry? I mean, in a significant way, I, I think the shootings in Atlanta where this church-raised gunman went from one business entity to another, which is at minimum 40 minutes away. Uh, if you know Atlanta traffic, the traffic is, is bad enough where getting from one location to another is is not easy. And so this church-raised gunman unleashed havoc and chaos, devastation and destruction in one location, gone in his car, then drove another 40 minutes to another location to repeat the same actions, basically taking a gun and firing it upon people that he was blaming simply because of what he would call his own sex addiction. And so one of the things I realized was like, oh man, this targeting of Asian Americans, if you look throughout history, is both simple and complex. And the church's lack of engagement in addressing the broader imagination, the broader social imagination and how Asian Americans and other racialized minority communities, whether they are Black or Latino or Indigenous, has been significantly lacking. And so because of this reality, a lot of Christians struggle to see the connection between how we are racialized or how racism has infected us to these acts that keep emerging all throughout the country, especially in times when different communities are easy to scapegoat or to target, like we saw during the pandemic with Asian Americans and the rhetoric that really helped fuel it with the former president of the United States incessantly using terms like China virus and Kung flu and China flu, which basically unearthed and reactivated or overtly activated anti-Asian sentiment and Sinophobic views, including within the Christian communities. And so I think for us, we started seeing a rise almost immediately in 2019 of anti-Asian hate and violence. All of this was reported by Stop API Hate, which was founded in part by uh, one of the founders is a devout Christian. His name is Russell John. 
and then we were seeing the same things and the same rhetoric emerge within uh, pulpits and pews. And so we came out with a statement and then we just continued to respond to all the anti-Asian hate and violence, which really for a lot of us within the Asian American community and especially within the Asian American Christian community culminated or climaxed in the Atlanta shooting. It didn't end at the, in the Atlanta shootings, but it was a high tension point for so many because a lot of the women within the Asian American community and the Asian American Christian community resonated with the reason that this perverted killer um, went on a shooting spree because they had been on the receiving end of a lot of fetishization and racism and racialized fetishization for being Asian American women, through being objectified, through being viewed as objects of pleasure, and then the comments that really kind of connected this act of violence with a lot of their own experiences. And so for them, a lot of Asian American women, especially Asian American Christian women, were really concerned with the silence of the church. And so one of the things that we did was we organized 14 simultaneous rallies that were church-led all throughout the country in 14 different cities. We had probably somewhere between five and 10,000 people show up collectively all throughout the country to basically stand for Asian American lives and dignity, knowing that a lot of Asian American women were very frustrated, disillusioned, disappointed with the lack of engagement by their own faith communities when they were asking for someone to speak up. And so we found ourselves really engaging at a variety of levels, but that was a particularly significant moment in many ways, like the, the African-American community experience with George Floyd being murdered uh, and just all the deaths and murders of African-Americans leading up to George Floyd essentially created a pressure cooker so that when George Floyd was killed, the whole world essentially erupted. Yeah. And to that point, you've challenged the church in some of your writings. Uh, you said church has been the soil of the harmful attitudes and perspectives leading to the many racial injustices we see today. What else can and should the church be doing? Yeah, I would say that what we've consistently seen is, uh, especially today, is how many segments of the church, not all, but many segments of the church really struggle to reckon with their own histories and with our own history, collective history. I mean, you could even argue that the current structure of race and racism was created and cultivated by the church in order to advance a greedy agenda by enslaving Africans simply because they were categorized as black and then shipping them like animals across the Atlantic Ocean to be sold and abused and mistreated in thousands of different ways. And you go through country after country, and you see similar patterns that are often tied to colonialism and to exploitation and to the extraction of resources, especially human resources. And you find that the church has almost always been in bed with these acts of evil. We often fail to engage with that because many within the West say we cannot apologize or repent of our ancestors' sins. And on the one hand, I understand where they're coming from because my sin is my sin, and I would not want my sin to be imposed or for my children to have to deal with the sins that I commit. 
and I would not want to be held accountable necessarily for the sins that my parents or my ancestors have committed on an individual level. But on the other, on the other hand, I've inherited things, have been passed down from generation to generation, both consciously and subconsciously, that have shaped the way I view the world, shaped the way I engage with my faith, that shaped the way that I benefit or I am placed at a disadvantage simply because of what has been passed down through generations, as well as what has been passed down through collective generations of different people groups, all that claim to be Christian. And so I think that we have a reckoning with history that we need to engage with. I find that Christians oftentimes struggle to do with, especially those in the West, because they don't want to be held culpable, responsible, or take responsibility, which is, I think, the real heart of the issue, for the injustices that we see. And I don't think most people are saying you are responsible for your parents' sin, but you do have a responsibility as a Christian to pursue the well-being, the flourishing, the shalom of the spaces and places you find yourself in. I mean, that's what it means to be light and salt in this world. You know, God calls us to be light and salt. And to be light and salt means that we shine light in darkness and we purify we season, we make good with our saltiness, the things that are rotten or that are rotting. And so I think that, that that's a big piece. I think the other piece is to really question and reconcile with the realities that a segregated and an unjust segregation has shaped our Christian imaginations more than oftentimes the Bible has. You see such a divide between communities that are well-to-do and communities that are impoverished, and it's almost as if they're totally different worlds that Christians engage in, and sometimes they don't know how to engage because they don't really know what's happening just across the railroad tracks or down the road a few miles away, and to see the the massive disparities that are taking place that we are called to make right. And so, I mean, there's, there's so many things that Christians need to engage in. But I think if we just look at history and how we are shaped by segregation, voluntary segregation today, I think that makes a big difference. You've written and now you're just speaking about reconciliation. How do you see you, the church, AACC, Asian American Christian Collaborative, and the gun violence prevention engaging in reconciliation? How do you see that happen? Well, to reconcile simply means to make right, right? It's, it, it means to take what is broken and kind of reconnect things or reestablish things or, or make things whole again. And so, I mean, there's a Japanese art form called kintsugi, which a lot of kind of preachers love to use as a sermon illustration because it's a beautiful illustration where pottery that's broken is put together by using gold to attach the broken parts together. And then the refurbished pottery is actually more beautiful than the original pottery was. Uh, I live in Japan. I can't, I'm not familiar with it. How, how do we spell it? K-I-N-T-S-U-G-I. Kintsugi. Uh, kintsugi. And if you don't know the work of like Makoto Fujimura, who's out in the East Coast, I mean, he, he does a lot of work around this. And he's a Christian artist, but it's a pretty commonly used art form where the reconciled pottery is actually more beautiful than the original pottery. And how would you apply it, uh, because this is front and center as we're speaking today, the crisis in Gaza and Israel, 
the Kintsugi notion, the reconciliation, how do you see the Christian message applying there? I mean, the most disheartening thing, I think, is the Christian, especially the Christian response in the West. First of all, I want to be very clear, like, when conflicts like this emerge, two things happen. Both anti-Semitism rises and Islamophobia rises, or kind of anti-Muslim sentiments. I think both need to be stopped immediately, because the people that are often affected are not the people that are causing the conflict, but are everyday civilians that are not doing and causing the conflict in the ways that, you know, that we're seeing portrayed either in the media or through social media. With that said, the long history of Israel and and Palestine is a complicated one, but the fact that we are finding ourselves in a place where a lot of Christians, especially evangelical Christians, are justifying the activities of the Israeli military, especially as it pertains to its impact on civilians, is very concerning because the death toll, both on the Israeli side as well as in the Palestinian side, is it's already in the thousands and it's just been a week since the war has started or since the conflict has started. And the devastation that lies in the wake of people being displaced and every and we have to remember that everyone in that region has already experienced a form of displacement. Everyone has experienced a form of exile. And now Palestinians, especially in Gaza, are being required to be displaced again as their homes are being destroyed and whatnot. And instead of blanket blaming all of Palestine or all those who live in Gaza, what should be of high priority is a focus on Hamas and stopping the work of Hamas, especially as it pertains to their violent activities, while simultaneously protecting all the other Palestinians. And so the work of reconciliation then is a commitment to peacemaking, not just peacekeeping. And it's not just peacekeeping, but finding a way around the violence, if possible, and if violence is utterly necessary, which as a Christian is a hard position to take, especially if you take the words of Jesus seriously, then to make sure that civilians are not being targeted or attacked in the wake of all the conflict. And so what we need to realize is that humanitarian laws should not be broken, that these laws that were put in place especially after reflecting upon the devastation of war and its impact on innocent civilians, should not be betrayed and that we need to uphold the, the life and dignity of people, especially those that have nothing to do with deciding whether violent conflicts are taking place or not. And so for the Christian, we need to be calling for peace. That's simply what it is. Yeah. And one of the ways that we do that, whether it's gun violence or war, is to find ways for us to basically say that violence, if it has to be a resort, should be the last resort that anyone takes. Yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking of what you're saying in the, the quotation from the great justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was a Supreme Court justice early in the 20th century, said, I will not give a fig for simplicity on this side of complexity, but I will give my life for simplicity on the other side of complexity. And that complexity, to my mind, as I'm listening to you, is really engaging in reconciliation, is wrestling with these incredibly complex, long-standing issues to get to something that is 
life-giving and producing a peace. And uh, certainly Jesus spoke of that in various ways. Moving to, to gun violence prevention, which is the work that we share more explicitly, you're going to host a gathering in a week or so around this. Say more about your commitment, your hope, what the goal might be. What's interesting is that there are plenty of theological resources that articulate a substantial amount of reasons on why Christians should be firmly in opposition to gun violence and against the proliferation of basically weapons of mass destruction, which, are, which include guns. I get all the arguments about what, how we need to protect ourselves and how you know we need to protect our families, and I understand all of that. But seeing the data where it shows that in the U.S. there's more guns than there are people, that the rise in the number of guns in any place is oftentimes, is almost always correlated with more gun violence, that guns radically increase the number of fatalities when it comes to those who are attempting to take their own lives, that it's the number one cause of death among youth in the United States, that it amplifies the effects of domestic violence. It leads to havoc and chaos all throughout the country, creating anxiety for people who are afraid just to walk outside because they don't know when someone is going to randomly unleash an arsenal of bullets that might not be for them, but ends up hitting them or their loved ones. It's a recipe for disaster. And Christians, unfortunately, especially evangelicals, as the studies show, seem to be the most significant defenders of gun ownership and loose gun restrictions more than anyone else. And of course, you're going to have different arguments, I mean, from different communities. So, you know, like there's going to be different reasons why people come to different conclusions. But I don't think most people understand that the Second Amendment was primarily written to essentially protect the right to bear arms for the sake of capturing uh, African slaves, as well as shooting Native Americans, that the militia was not designed for primarily the protection of the U.S., but of basically those who are holding on to chattel slaves. And then to understand how Scalia's opinion turned a contextually driven amendment into something about personal and individual right to bear arms in a manner that had nothing to do with its historical meaning and how so many people have bought onto that, especially from the Christian right. And so we find ourselves in a place where, one, we don't recognize history. Two, we've been discipled by politics and partisanship. Three, we stand more on our rights than on our desire to really follow the ways of Jesus as the ultimate peacemaker, and so on and so forth. And so I think that one of the things that we need to do is get Christians educated, which we would call discipled, to help them understand what is taking place, that gun manufacturers are actively working to basically promote the proliferation of guns. And their goal is to increase their bottom line. They don't care who buys it, which is why they're targeting uh, minority gun ownership more than anything else right now because they feel like the white population is essentially saturated. And so they're going after ways to find uh, effective means of messaging. Are you talking about discipling? Clearly, the work that you do with 10 by 10 
10 million kids over 10 years. That's a big discipling uh, undertaking. How do you see discipling happen in the framework of your Christian faith? How does that take place? On the one hand, it's one-on-one. It's one person at a time. It's through relationship. In some ways, we've given up our discipleship to programs and to social media and to YouTube sermons and so on and so forth and to entertainment. And, you know, what you win people with is what you're going to win people to. And so, you know, when church is no longer fun, the youth leave. When the church is no longer entertaining, the youth leave. When the church is no longer so-and-so, the youth will leave. And the same will go for the Jesus that we introduce people to. I think some people will introduce the next generations to the Jesus of the Bible. I think a lot of Christians are introducing uh, young people to a different type of Jesus that maybe bears the name of Jesus, but doesn't actually look like or sound like Jesus who called for a radical submission to all that he commands. So I would say that when it comes to discipleship, there's an element of like it being one-on-one. I also think that because entire communities are segregated, that most communities are so politicized that they actually identify with their political party more than their Christian faith, which studies show like the average American is more partisan than they are their religious tradition. And so that means that people are more Republican or Democrat or whatever party that they associate with than than they are their faith tradition. And this is perhaps why, especially within many evangelical spaces, the, the idea that someone can be a Democrat and a Christian is an anathema. But when it comes to being a Christian, like there's almost an assumption that you you either are or you have to be Republican. And I think Christians can vote their conscience. I think they can affiliate with whatever party, but they should not sell their soul to any party. And what politics in our current state in the U.S. does is it forces you to sell your soul, to make compromises that you're not willing to make, but you have to make, and then you eventually become compromised as a result of those compromises that you make all in order to belong to a party that really has an agenda that isn't Christian because neither party is a Christian party, even though one party likes to declare itself to be Christian or tries to appeal to Christians more than uh, more than others. And, then, and, and so we find ourselves in a place where we actually have to do some more kind of sociological discipleship where we're, we're not just doing the one-on-one stuff, but we're actually helping people see how we are so divided along party lines, along geographical lines, along racial lines, and so on and so forth, in ways that actually are contrary to our Christian commitments and, and faith. Yeah, you've said six and seventh generations Christian in your family, and from earlier conversations, you have been formed and continue to live in the evangelical community, which uh, at least the public spin is, is that tend to be more conservative, tend to lean one way, more religiously connected to more guns and, and, and so forth and so on. So how, do, how does that all work for you? How do you work in that? Uh, I love everybody. I try to love everybody. And I think, you know, you, you kind of are where you are. And as an Asian American Protestant, it means that, and especially being Korean, that I never knew what an evangelical was until I started working at an evangelical institution. I had gone to an evangelical school, but I, I didn't know the difference between evangelical and Protestant. I had no idea that there was a whole history of evangelicalism and the moral majority and 
its unholy marriage to the Republican Party at one point, and well, it still exists. But I also know that there are evangelicals that are faithful and still identify as Republican, good friends, dear friends, people that I would trust to disciple my kids because they don't put their Republican faith over their faith in Jesus. And I would say the same thing about Democrats. There are evangelical Christians that are Democrat that don't put their democratic faith, and I'm using these words faith on purpose because I think that partisan politics demands more of our faith and our allegiance than I think Jesus would be okay with. That I know a lot of democratic Christians that I would say are solid Christians that love Jesus and are following the way of Christ in ways that many of those that I think are reported on are not. What I find in both Republican and Democratic evangelicals that makes them distinct or unique or people that I would say I would trust the discipleship of my child to is that they don't put their politics or their partisan politics over their faith. Mm-hmm. That, and the way I know that is because they are constantly and incessantly more critical of their own party than they are of the other party. Mm-hmm. So when I don't see Republicans critiquing their own party, Republican Christian, I know that they're in bed with the Republican Party. Interesting. And with the constituency that's been cultivated to believe that in order to be Christian, you have to be Republican. With the Democratic Party, it's a lot easier because the Democratic Party isn't necessarily known to be tied to the Christian faith, but I always appreciate when I see Democratic Christians or Democrat Christians essentially critique their own party and its failures because of that. And I, I'm an independent, um, and I choose to be because of how polarized our partisan politics are. But I am also very grateful for those who firmly plant themselves within a party and basically are the prophetic voice to their own party. That's kind of where I stand. I've heard your commitment, your passion, your faith, all the ways that you engage people in the gospel to produce a world that provides for flourishing, to use your your word, and uh, really appreciate our time together. Ray, is how can people be in touch with you and the work that you do, website or otherwise? Yeah, I, I mean, social media is always a good way to just stay connected to us. I'm on Instagram and what is now called X, and I'm debating whether I stay on or, or leave and trying to figure out, is Twitter or X going to evolve into something that's a lot less chaotic and crazy? I'm on threads, you know, and so you can find me on Instagram at rchain502 and then on threads at rchain502 and on Twitter or on X at tweetraychain. I'll also say follow the Asian American Christian Collaborative, AA Christ Collab, the letters A and the letter A, and then C H R S T C O L L A B. That's on like all the social media platforms from Facebook to X to Instagram and threads. You can follow us there and then make sure to go on our website to see kind of track with the work that we're doing sign up for our newsletter uh, you just go down uh, to the bottom and register because that's the best place to find the latest news including all the, the stuff that we're up to and so that's probably the best way and then you know every now and then i'll i speak pretty frequently across the country and so if i'm speaking somewhere uh happy to to always connect with people ray i'm glad that you speak i'm glad that you write i'm glad that you witness What an honor to spend this time, and I look forward to further engagements as we join our passion, our faith, and our witness together to address some of these important issues that we face as a church and as a country. Blessings. Thank you, Mark. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Reconciliation Roundtable. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and visit markbeckwith.net to stay up to date with new episodes, blog content, and other news. Please, if you could, rate and review this podcast on iTunes. It helps new listeners to find us. 